On our lowest products, it's about 72%. Our highest products, about 81, 82%. So I would say on our best selling, you can take 80 to 81 is, is our gross margin. You're listening to the Next Generation Podcast, weekly interviews with the most interesting and successful 20-somethings out there. All right. On today's episode, we have Ron Shaw, CEO and co-founder of Avi. Ron, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. Excited to be on, Connor. Likewise, brother. We're excited to have you on, man. Um, let's kick things off just at the super high level and maybe give the audience an idea of what Obvi is um, and where y'all are at today, just size-wise, kind of put everything into perspective for everyone. Absolutely. Um, so Obvi is a, is, is a collagen brand focused around women um, and, and, and focused on serving uh, a product that's going to help people feel good and look good without sacrificing taste. Um, our collagen brand is really focused on flavors and, and, and bringing back nostalgic flavors, especially. Um, and uh, for those who don't know, collagen is really um, focused around hair, skin, and nails and joints. Um, so uh, collagen is one of the most abundant proteins in your body. And uh, after the age of 30, you actually naturally start losing it. Hence why you see people with uh, skin getting saggy, nails getting brittle, hair getting lost. And uh, collagen is there to help uh, reproduce that. And uh, that's what we're focused on. To um, maybe give some people some, some context, it's a fairly new company. You have a history of, of kind of doing, doing a couple of really interesting things um, in other niches. And I definitely want to hit on those. But where are you guys at right now in, um, in terms of scale with, with maybe what, what you're comfortable to uh, share revenue-wise or sales-wise maybe? Yeah, sure. Um, so Avi is actually, as of last week, just about three years old now. And um, in these three years, we just crossed $32 million in revenue. Uh, we're completely bootstrapped and uh, it's no outside venture funding. And we started the company with $10,000 and that's the only money we've put in. So uh, it's been a pretty incredible journey. Uh, lean team, there's three co-founders um, and uh, another seven people on the team. So the 10 of us have uh, been gone quite a journey, but uh, it's been an exciting one. That's some insane scale in three years. So congrats on that. Thank you. Hearing that journey, I think one of the things that's kind of interesting is like, I bet if most people tried to basically go and do exactly what you guys did today without any of the experience that y'all had prior to going and starting Avi, they could not do it. Like absolutely not. Wouldn't be able to have like the framework, the skills, all of that kind of stuff. Because leading up to actually starting Avi, if I'm correct, you guys had like, between the three co-founders, like over two decades of experience working in supplements, whether it's through finance, marketing, branding, et cetera. Do you want to maybe kind of share the backstory there too? And, and then we'll kind of get into some of the lessons that you guys learned from that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, so actually, you know, I was actually an accounting major out of college. Uh, so back in 2012, I uh, started working for a CPA firm called uh, Deloitte. And uh, from there, I uh, actually got the chance to come on as a controller for a startup brand called Shreds. Uh, and in 2012, Shreds was on its way to becoming one of the fastest growing supplement brands. Um, I took a leap of faith leaving corporate, uh, but still stayed in my domain of corporate finance and, and accounting. Um, while I was there, I also met my two other co-founders today, um, Ankit, who uh, handled the branding and design at Shreds, and Ushrin, who managed the paid marketing at Shreds. Um, us three were basically like the team right under the C-suite. So we were kind of like the, the, I guess, the people in, in charge, right? Um, and one of the cool things that at Shreds was, uh, we had a crazy work ethic. We all lived in the same building, the apartment building, the office was in the penthouse. Um, and, uh, we worked from nine to six, went home, showered, um, came back around 9 PM, worked till about 3 AM. Also, also interrupt you, Ron, when you say we all, is this the entire company or the, the three of you guys? No, all of us. There was at that point about 18 people in the company when I had joined everyone. Lived and everyone in worked in this. Was that, yeah. like a, was that like a prerequisite to going and getting the job? It, it, it was mainly like where if you got the job, you were, your apartment was getting paid for to move there uh, because of the intensive work hours you had to put in. But they paid for our apartments. That's, that's amazing. I'm yeah, assuming was, you, you probably had, had a pretty cool culture at that point as long as you got, got along with everyone. Do you know what it was? It was everyone was so young and like you don't real, realize there's a world outside of this, this work, your job. And all your friends are the people who work there and everything you guys do together is there. So you don't feel like you're missing out, right? It's like, oh, this is my, this is my life. Um, so yeah, we all lived in the same building, all worked together. Only day off we had was Saturday. 
um, and uh, even Sundays. So it, it was intensive, but it was probably one of the most phenomenal experiences I've ever had. Um, and obviously, you know, when you spend some time there, you obviously get very close to the team. So myself and my two co-founders today, we got very close because we were kind of managing the entire company uh, to some extent. Um, and uh, what's really cool while we were there too, we also incubated brands like Flavor God, which is a seasoning company, and then Skinny.com, which is a tea company. Um, so basically at one point we were managing three brands and ARR at, at the peak was about $100 million. And um, it was uh, you know phenomenal experience, but it was also one of those high intensity you know, um, experiences that you don't know when you'll get out of. So after about three years there, myself and my two uh, co-founders, Ankit and Ash, we were basically like, you know what? We've learned a lot here. We've spent a lot of time here. Three years there felt like a decade uh, because of how much time we put in. So we went and said, uh, what if we actually tried to start a marketing agency that focused around helping other health and wellness brands with what we learned at Shreds? Um, so in 2016, we left. Uh, shreds and we started a marketing agency called ghost three media it was just the three of us um, what was cool is because we have three very unique skill sets we were almost able to kind of offer a whole wide range of services without having to have a big team um, and so uh, ghost three media was a boutique agency again focused around health and wellness brands and going in to health and wellness brands and saying hey whatever you guys need help in we're here to help so if it's ops and finance or paid marketing or website and branding and design, we can do it for you. Um, and slowly uh, built up our credibility there. Was was the uh, goal right, with starting the agency, was that to, you know, get the skill sets, get some money in to start your own brand down the road? Was that yeah. always the final playbook? Yeah, great question. Um, that was, our final playbook was after being a part of Shreds and being so close to like doing everything except owning it, it was like, damn, we really need that feeling of, I wish this was mine because uh, you want that, you know, last piece of power. But um, so our goal was, yes, we definitely wanted to have our own brand. But uh, what, we, what we looked at it, it was like, if we can learn a little bit more, right, and perfect our skill set, then we can actually start a brand and almost minimize any mistakes. Um, that was our hope. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's, that was the goal to start that marketing agency. And two questions going back to shreds, honestly, one, so I follow like a lot of bodybuilders on Instagram and yeah. so I've seen flavor God pop up everywhere and I actually had no idea who owned them or anything. Did that yeah. brand just crush through that bodybuilder community? I'm curious how it did. Like, if you can speak crushed. Um, yeah. Flavor God, you know, when it first, when we first um, incubated, it was the goal was to help people who um, meal prep have yep. more tasty food. Um, and the, the chef behind it, the Chris, Christopher Wallace, he's such a charming guy that he wasn't really like, he, he, he wasn't the reason we, we went into that space. We went into that space because that was our network. Um, but he kind of kept building the social media account side of it, where it kind of kept like the outside market still kind of engaged. So, um, at one point, uh, flavor God, when we were really growing it and when it started going viral, it was probably 80% consumed by bodybuilders and 20% by like outside market. And then I mean, slow, honestly, slowly, honestly, that makes so much. Yeah. I was gonna say, honestly, that makes so much sense to them yeah. because I'm seeing like, like I remember uh, one of the guys I follow is like Joey Swole or whatever. Joey Swole, yep. got a, yeah. The guy's got like a massive uh, following, but he goes and posts all, like all of the pizza flavors and like the chocolate donut yep. flavors, chocolate and all donut. Kind of stuff. Oh yeah, man. I would imagine that they just crush. Okay. All right. That, I would, that was just a personal question for me. Um, yeah, but yeah. the other, the other thing I'm very curious about is, uh, before we even get into some of the more agency stuff and then eventually Avi is you basically lived this life where you got this crazy career experience of everyone living in the same building, the office being in the penthouse, like, like you're basically thinking about work 24 seven, maybe with the exceptions of those Saturdays or maybe if you have a Sunday off, uh, yep. for like three years straight with that kind of culture in mind, and then the kind of culture that we're maybe seeing more in the last like year or two of like, no, 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 we're remote first and async and all that kind of stuff. Like, yep. do you buy into this philosophy that like the remote work, uh, I guess, like uh, culture is as effective as that in-person environment? Um, I'm probably going to sound like an absolutist here, but I absolutely hate the new culture. 
Um, I, I can't stand it. Uh, we, uh, it's, it's gotten to the point where like, I don't have a choice, uh, because the, the culture worldwide has shifted. Uh, when you see, you know, multi-billion dollar brands saying, Hey, or companies saying, Hey, remote's fine. You can't, you can't be sitting there and saying, no, remote's not effective. I don't think remote is as effective as in person. In fact, um, we, when we started Obvi, uh, we've had an office from day one. Um, and even through COVID, even through everything that's going on, our office never closed. Um, every single employee comes into the office every day. Um, these last two weeks are the first time that I've been home, and it's only because I have a newborn. Um, but I'm going back to the office starting Monday. So um, the for us, that part of culture never left us, which is in real life. Um, and I do not believe work from home is as effective or anywhere close to um, that level of um, engagement and um, efficiency. Looking at the route you took to go from, you worked at the company agency and then kind of starting your own brand. If you reflect on that a little bit, do you think that was pretty much kind of the, the perfect scenario you could have done? Yeah. Or you know, is there anything you might have changed um, if you wanted to speed up that process a little bit? No, you know, uh, it was uh, the way I related to, uh, it's kind of weird, but uh, we called our shreds days like our high school years, right? We were like having a lot of fun, but still learning, right? Really, really learning, having a lot of fun though. You know, all your friends are there. You guys are kind of having, you know, a, a great time in high school. And then what our agency was, was like going to college. And you're really starting to focus on your major, trying to figure out what you're going to do next in life, right? Uh, but you have to be a little bit more serious in high school. And then what Obvi really is, is it's our final thesis after all these years of education. And that's really what we're trying to show is all the learning that we did and all the experiences that we had is a culmination of what created Obvi. Um, and, and so I think it was pretty important to go through this stage. I like that framework a lot. It's like high school, or I guess W2 is high school, uh, agency slash learning on someone else's dime and more of a controlled element, college, yeah. and then actually going and like graduating is basically like running your own brand, your own kind of like product and user experience element. That's yeah. really cool. Um, yeah. the, the other question I think that maybe a lot of people that are listening to this can maybe relate to or would love to understand too is like y'all each work in three different departments, right? If I had imagined it's marketing brand and then, uh, or marketing design and finance yeah. or slash operations. Um, I'd love to maybe understand like how do those conversations go to decide to go and leave shreds and want to go and start your own thing? Because I bet a lot of people maybe are saying like, oh, my coworker and I, you know, we always going to riff on this and stuff, but like maybe I'm more ambitious and I haven't like, actually convinced him to make the leap yet. Were yeah. all three of you guys just chomping at the bit for like that last year or how did that conversation flow? Yeah. You know, it was the last six months really where, um, and shreds had a pretty big downfall. Right. Um, and, and it was, it was purely because, uh, too much growth got to the egos of leadership. Um, and, uh, you know, it's still a learning, but, um, what we, what we started seeing is, is what we helped build is what we had almost no control over. Um, in terms of managing. Um, so imagine you're building, 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 right? Um, and then when it comes to like um, saying, hey, this is ready to go and it's, it's, it's built, right? You have no voice in how and what direction or any, any kind of direction of what to do with the money, what to do with the success, what to do with further growth. Um, you're just in this level of just constantly building um, you almost feel like you're kind of like, uh, what am I doing this for? Right. Um, and so I think the last six months really for us got to the point where it's like, damn, man, we put in a lot to this. We learned a lot, but if we had a little bit more say or a little bit like ownership or skin in the game, probably could have had a little bit, um, um, different direction for the brand. And so that collectively kept playing on us and then you know myself and we us three were actually also roommates in the same apartment too so uh you know late night talks and and whatnot um it just slowly started to become where we see the writing on the wall and we'd love to have the ability to do it ourselves what was there a specific metric you had in mind in terms of money you had saved up or did you guys just kind of not really have anything there but decided to pull the trigger and just went for it yeah pull the trigger went for it um I think for us, because we had almost no experience into the real world 
or what real world looks like. Like, I mean, you're spending 19 hours a day into this one area. You don't even realize what's going on, right? You, your rent's paid for, um, you know, you, you, you have, you don't have any time to take your car and meet other people. And so like, you're in this like bubble. Um, and so for us, there was no like real, real understanding of the impact of leaving. It was just more so just pure confidence of, Hey, we're, we know what we're doing. We can probably just do this anywhere. And then how did that transition into actually, you know, creating a successful agency? I'm assuming it must've been a bit, the first couple months there, like where were you kind of taking on any clients you coded? Did you have oh, a couple yeah, people in yeah. mind and when no, did you actually opp- start making money? Yeah, you're, you're an opportunist, right? So you, you take anything you can, but what I will say is, and until this day, I mean, you drop the word shreds or skinny.com or flavor God. Um, it's, it's like, it's kind of like, you know, for an investment banker saying, Hey, I worked at Goldman, you know, um, now where Goldman is, doesn't matter. It's, it's, you work there. And so that gave us a good push of, uh, and, and wanting to stay in the health and wellness, uh, category, it, it got us to where people were actually reaching out to us, um, to, Hey, Oh, can you do what you did at shreds here? Right. And um, obviously you're an opportunist, you know, we're, we're 22 years old, 23 years old. Yeah, of course we can, you know? Um, and so I think that transition wasn't too hard. Um, and people were already hinting at, oh man, I wish you guys could help us with this or this or that. So it, it wasn't as, as scary of a leap as just starting cold. And then what was, was there a moment where you guys kind of realized, hey, we're bringing in enough money to kind of have a sustainable business there. Maybe you guys took a small salary or what did that actual timeline look like from launching the agency to, Hey, we're profitable to, Hey, we're actually, you know, at a decent scale. You know, with the agency, the biggest part was, um, and, and I think we still have this issue sometimes is um, I think systematically we were probably the nicest guys in the world. And it, it, it kind of screwed us over one too many times. Um, we'd, we'd get trapped with a lot of, hey, yeah, we know we, we'll, we'll pay you, we'll pay you. Um, you know, and yeah, I remember one client, we had racked up um, a six-figure bill because they're like, hey, we're working on this big retail deal. Just keep, keep grinding for us on the ad. Just keep driving traffic, this and that. And we'd crush it for them. And, you know, that owner ran away with the money. Um, and, uh, you know, it happened one too many times. And we were just so bad at collecting money and being a finance person, you'd think you'd, you know, I knew how much money we'd have to collect. All the books were tied up, but our accounts receivable was so high. Um, and it was just because we just loved working, right. And love challenges. So we said, all right, cool. No problem. Um, and that, all right, cool. No problem turned into, we don't know what we're doing with um, building this business properly because we're not even properly collecting money. So um, I think being a little naive um, there, but at some point it got to the point where we're like, guys, we can't, we don't know how to scale an agency. Um, You know, um, we are brand builders and we want something of our own. Um, And so I think uh, 2018, that shift started coming in 2019, it finally popped. I feel like that's going to be so disappointing to be really good at, you know, the helping other people scale their businesses and, and, you know, doing all the marketing for them and then, not getting paid on the backside. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah it, it, was, it was deep six figures that we just never collected. Um, and uh, it was a good learning piece. You know, it's like, we will never, ever do this again. You know, you're clearly um, better at running the brand at a significantly larger scale, right? Than, than trying to manage a lot of the aspects there. Uh, yeah. w- when you decided to make that jump, you, you guys also didn't put that much money in, right? You, I think you, you have a pretty interesting story on... I want to say your first kind of purchase order and yeah, kind of getting some of that money in before you really had a product and being able to reinvest it. Um, yep. Was that like the initial mindset? I don't know. I, I feel like it would be so stressful to kind of come in with, you know, everyone's putting in a couple grand and starting from scratch again. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, I remember it was the last client we had and uh, we got really badly burned. Um, we had actually helped this person score a deal with As Seen on TV. And um, from there, he's like, hey, I'm going to pay you from the proceeds of this. Um, never did. And we were like, all right, this has happened one too many times. Um, we need to move on. And at this point, um, we, we also didn't have a ton of money. Um, and um, 
So what we had was we were like, all right, if we want to start our own brand, let's do it. How much can we all chip in? And I, you know, it was around the three thousand dollars each. Um, Wait, Ron, and he said, Ron, can I cut you off yeah. there real quick? Because I feel yeah. like when we were chatting, when we were chatting the other day, we were talking like you know twenty five boutique clients in the agency, seven figures of revenue, and and I understand obviously getting yeah. stiff deep into the six figures that freaking hurts. But like it seemed like you guys were running a pretty successful agency here when you said like you were when you weren't when you didn't have a ton of cash, is it like everyone's lifestyle creep was just like equally yeah. matching how much you guys were making? Yeah. It, you know what it was? It was that when I say accounts receivable was very high, we hit seven figures in, in billables. Um, and, and what we collected on and what we ended up spending and, and what we even, and, and even between us agency and, and obvi. We had started up a couple brands. One was called Infinity Curve. It was like a, a belt that you wear around your waist to lose weight. Um, and 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 a, and a clothing com uh, company called Tunnel. Um, and so we had we had tried a couple of initiatives. We had spent money that we didn't that we thought would be coming in that never really ended up being collected. Um, but in terms of what we build um in those in those few years was a seven figure agency um but the amount of burns that we had is what shifted us away from the agency if that makes sense yeah okay that makes complete sense and i yeah. think i i guess the obvious answer to this question is that uh the, the question i'm about to ask is why go into the supplement industry after this right and the obvious answer is you guys are coming in with literally years and years and years of experience growing these for other brands but i think the thing that most people don't know unless you are in the supplement industry is like it is a freaking competitive beast yes. like it is probably the most competitive marketing industry to get into period uh yes. and and in part because the economics are really great once you go and acquire that customer right let's say you, you can get somebody for cheap they stick around for a long time they're reordering every month or bi-monthly or quarterly uh the margins on the product i think we were chatting the other day that's like you have like 81 percent gross margins on your products yep. and that's like pretty standard in the supplement industry so like it makes sense from that standpoint. But when you guys were going into this and you were like, I, I guess at the time, you know, I use collagen now, but like collagen was a little bit of like a more new thing three, four years ago. Uh, and it yep. was, or, well, there's going to be someone who's been using collagen for like 10 years. You're going to be like, no, it wasn't. Uh, but like, let's be honest, like, like hippies were using collagen before and it wasn't necessarily right. like mass market appeal. Um, no, not at all. What were you guys just like crazy confident that you could just differentiate and sell way better because of your chops the last like 10, 20 years? 10 plus years uh you know what it was i think for us as we as we were watching the market very closely because that's that's where we were working with our clients too we one of it was one of the clients that really kind of helped us shift our mindset of, of things changing was it was a client called aloha which is a vegan protein line um and aloha really doubled down on the vegan protein market because they had this belief that people really are moving towards wanting to feel good, right? And not so much feel jacked or feel, you know, ripped or eight pack and six pack. People are shifting towards, I want to, I want to wake up feeling good. I want to look good. I, I, I care about preserving my body. Right. And so as we kept seeing that narrative shape up, uh, we also saw just sports nutrition one, like you mentioned, super getting crowded, right? What more, can you add to a pre-workout or what more can you add to a whey protein to innovate it? Right. Uh, people were, ju it, it, there just wasn't much space left. So as we started to explore the market, we really, really enjoyed looking at the wellness market and the, what, what, what we ended up going into is the Nutra cosmetic market, right? Which is getting cosmetic benefits through nutrition. And the product leader in that market was collagen. And as we explored collagen, that's where we saw, some things that seem so important and is the most abundant protein in everyone's body just didn't have the right attention in the market. Nobody was disrupting it. No one was really making it exciting. Uh, Vital Protein was the only brand that was even talking, talks about being a billion dollar valuation. Um, and then, you know, ancient nutrition, but there was nobody making it fun. And so that's where we saw that, hey, we know how to make things fun in sports nutrition. If we can bring a little bit of that into this Nutra cosmetic world, uh, we can disrupt. Um, and, and we were confident about that. So what were the next steps then after that? So you guys decide, hey, running the agency, we've come up with some brand ideas. We know what the product is. You got nine grand in a bank account now. 
Yeah. How do you, how do you go from that to, you know, some sort of reasonable scale and, and the amount of, you know, even the first year, I think you guys did a couple hundred grand, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, what we did was again, we, we had, we said, okay, you know, we'll we each put in a few grand um, into this and, and see what we can get out of it. And so one of the things being plugged into the industry, one thing that we, that helped us kind of get to stage two pretty quickly was I knew, I knew manufacturers, right? Because we've been working in the industry for eight years. It's, it's not like I had to go Google it or, or do a ton of research. So right off the bat, we, I hit up some manufacturers that I knew could give us low minimum order quantities um, and be able to kind of create products for us without an R&D cost. Um, so we went and worked with um, an, a manufacturer in Atlanta and uh, we basically said, hey, here's the concept we have. Nostalgic flavors in collagen. And uh, he was kind of laughing because he said, it's so hard to mask the collagen. Um, that's why no one really does flavored collagen. So January, January was when we started doing the R&D. It took about six months to really get the product finished. Uh, probably tons and tons of samples, um, tons of back and forth. Um, and finally, when we nailed it, that's when we basically said, all right, we got our product. What's the minimum we can order? It was, I think it was a uh, 500 or 600 units of each flavor. We started with two flavors. Our total PL came out to like seven grand. And then we said, all right, we have a few grand also for marketing. The, the cool part was for us, because our background was marketing, website design, branding, and paid marketing, we were able to pretty much have a sure bet of starting right out the gate with some solid ROAS, right? Um, it's not like we had to go hire an agency. It's not like we had to go hire a branding agency or a paid marketing agency. Everything was handled in-house. And so when you have that much control with not too much overhead, you're able to kind of get started for what we got started for. And you know, could we have put more money? Yeah, we weren't broke, right? Uh, we had we could have put more money, but we didn't need to. And I think what we lived off of is is if we can stretch this as far as we can, that would be the most ideal scenario. So uh, June first, we launched, um, and from day one, we ran Facebook ads. That was the first thing. As soon as our Shopify store went live, so did our Facebook ads. What were some of the big either levers or you, you kind of went through the cycle of like, I don't know, 10 different small businesses in the, in the time frame of three years, right? You went from zero to, you know, probably got your first 10 grand and then 100 and you must be doing 10 million a year at this point. Um, yeah. What, what are kind of some of those significant differences in terms of, you know, starting out from scratch to some of those issues maybe that you faced in the middle from going, you know, maybe to get that first million dollars that is probably significantly different than hitting that $10 million revenue rate. Was it building the team and processes or what sort of, I guess, uh, you know, issues and levers were you pulling on? Yeah. So uh, just to give a quick roadmap of our growth, um, our first year, which is 2019, our really first six months, because we started June, we did about 178,000 in revenue. Year two, which was 2020, a full year, we did 5.2 million. Um, and then year three, which was 2021, we did 19.5 million. Um, and then this year, we're at about 9 million or 10 million so far. Um, so for us, the biggest piece to all those growth stages, right? Um, year one, it was just getting anything we could do, right? Um, we were still rolling off a couple of last few clients we had on the marketing agency end. So we weren't full, full time on Abbey yet. Um, but by the end of it, it was, uh, it was the first Black Friday. Um, and we had done, I think, um, 100 grand uh, November 2019. And we were like, oh, wow, this has some, this has some real potential. Um, and so basically going into 2020 early, we basically said, if Facebook ads can continue to stay where it's at, which is we were getting about a two and a half row ads at that time. Um, and we were, you know, still being, you know, looking back, I wish we were even more aggressive now, but um, we were, we were still a little stingy, but at the same time, we were like, all right, you know what, let's double down. So we kept double downing. And then there was one lever that I think is still today. The biggest reason we can scale is we, um, we started a community on Facebook. And uh, if you go to Facebook and you type in Avi community, 
It's the second largest college and community in the world now. Uh, it's about 52,000 members deep, um, all active, super, super engaged. And it's a, it's a funnel for all our customers. Um, what we did was um, pretty early on was we started this community and a lot of brands, and, and this is one of the things we learned was a lot of brands say, hey, we listen to our customers a lot. We talk to our customers or we love community, this and that. But we never really saw anyone do it. Uh, so we actually did it. Um, we created a community where we talk to all our customers, myself and the founders. We still go in there, talk every day. Um, and our goal with that was if we can create a community where we can ask people what they want from Obvi, what they love about Obvi, what they hate, uh, basically a feedback loop, we can basically remove any kind of hesitation for us to continue to scale without thinking that we'll ever fall back. So one of the big things we did is we did a lot of product launches and the, the evolution of those product launches was us going into the community and saying, hey guys, what would you like to see next? And uh, people would say, oh, what if you launched a cocoa cereal flavor? Or what if you launched marshmallow cereal? So what we did is we went and launched exactly what they asked for. We asked in a survey, we did a poll, um, and whatever they would ask for, we would go to our manufacturer, run a low minimum order quantity, we'd launch it, and we'd quickly sell out. And what that showed us was, wait, we could actually build the entire business around this community. Um, what if we just keep asking them what they want and actually launch it? And it sounded so much simpler uh, at that time. And turns out three years later, it is that simple. Um, Besides our first two products that we launched with our own merit, the, the last 30 or 27 SKUs that we've launched are completely through us asking on a survey in our community, what should we launch next and our community voting and us going to market with that. I feel like that's going to be so satisfying to I don't know, have an idea of, hey, community might work and then just have it take off, right? Like, oh, that it's is incredible. Incredible. What, what, what's the, what are people talking about? Is it like a fitness type of base group or because to your point, right, it's so easy to say, oh, start a community. But if you just have a group with no, I don't know, no, no engagement, there's no value there. How are you keeping the engagement so high and people involved in the Yeah. Market? The biggest thing is, is, is when you give somebody the responsibility to help build your brand, they are vested. Right. Um, so one of the things we did from day one is we were very authentic about it and very intentional, where if we ask you something in there, nine times out of 10, whatever you give us as a response is what we're going to do. Um, I remember when we first asked, uh, what is the reason you hesitate um, buying again from Obby? And people said, oh, we hate paying the six dollar shipping. Right. Um, and so one of the steps we took was is we did free shipping on all orders. Right. And, and it was just little things that were like, oh, people were like, oh, wow, we appreciate that. And, and, and it turned into where people were sticking around because they saw us listening. Um, and so I think part of a community is, is not just building one because you, you want one, <laughs> um, but building one because you're actually going to do something with it. Um, the other thing we do a lot is myself and my co-founders, we go live in there pretty much weekly. Um, we're talking in there and this, the, the biggest thing we do, I think is we're super vulnerable. Um, I myself dealt with, you know, wanting to lose weight for, for a long time. Um, I go in there and say, Hey guys, here's what I'm dealing with. Um, I feel like I have an imposter syndrome, you know, I would run a health and wellness brand and I deal with this. Um, what are you guys dealing with? Um, same thing with my other co-founders. One of them deals with extreme anxiety. Right. He said, hey, this one product you guys helped me launch for my brand helps me. Thank you. You know, um, and so when you're, I think, pretty authentic about it, um, naturally, people feel like, oh, this is a safe space and um, they want to engage just a little bit deeper. So you'd say the, the benefit of the community to that extent then is more engagement, but it's also learning about the customer. It's not necessarily your biggest sales trap, sales 100%, channel, right? hundred okay. percent. Yes. Yeah. Our, our biggest sales channel will always be advertising top of funnel. But um, what, what, what the community is, is it's, it's where you realize the brand is bigger than your products um, and you see real lives changing. And so what they talk about all day, and we get about 150 to 200 posts in there per day. 
Um, and about what? It's it's literally about anything and everything. So there, most of the posts are like, "Hey, how do I use this product?" Right? Or um, what do you guys mix it with? I found this product to be a little sweet. How or many, how many people little, are in the group? Fifty-two thousand. Damn. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that 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 the. What's really cool is we also have about eight admins and moderators that help moderate the group too. So it's a pretty big group. Uh, it's a lot of content in there. Um, majority of it is just people sharing how they're using our product. Our product is super versatile. You can eat, drink, or bake with it. Um, so tons of recipes, tons of people saying, hey, what if we did a peppermint mocha? Tons of ideas, tons of sharing of you know content. And, and, and the, the whole thing about it is, is people see that other people are open about sharing their journey. So people are always sharing what they're struggling with too in there. And I want to kind of quickly dive into like the actual logistics of the community. Do you think that Facebook is the best place to build it? Because you can also get people that are coming in that are just like through the Facebook platform itself. I think like one thing that maybe some brands that are trying to go after the younger market might struggle with is like their customer just isn't on Facebook anymore these days. And I feel like they might believe it's more like Discord or Tele, I don't know, probably Slack, not Telegram, but yeah. yeah, Slack maybe. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's it's there is no right answer here. Um, and um, the, the the truth is is you need to find out who your customer is and what they're comfortable using. Our customer was a forty to sixty five year old woman. Um, I could never imagine asking a forty to sixty five year old woman to come and join Discord or Slack. Um, or anything else, well. it wouldn't work out. Um, at the same time, the 40 to 65 year old demo is heavily in tune with Facebook. Um, now, while giving another piece to it is, is we also run a lot of TikTok ads. Um, now, what we'll see is, is majority of our membership is coming from the customers we acquire from Facebook or Instagram. Not too many TikTok customers join our community because they're just not Facebook people. Um, and so even though, you know, I feel there is, you know, uh, tons of places you can hold, host a community, uh, Discord's great, Slack is great, even WhatsApp, you know, whatever way you want to do it, you can do it. But uh, I think it should be based off of the majority of your customer type. Um, so if you're attracting millennials or Gen Z, don't go on Facebook. It's not, it's, it won't make sense for you. Um, use something like Discord uh, instead. Kind of a follow-up question, just in terms of like your business specifically in the supplement business as a whole. So like two back-to-back, -back. one, I know for e-commerce, Q4 is kind of like the holy mecca, but for supplements, is it more Q1 when everyone's like on their resolution grinds? Yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, definitely. Big time. Yeah, it's uh, the new year, new me. Uh, so the, to, to quickly to quickly cycle you through it, it's um, January 1st to March 31st is your top peak probably 35 to 40% of your revenue can come to there. Okay. And I'm generalizing a little bit. Um, April to um, April to about uh, Memorial Day weekend, it slows down a little bit, but it's still very strong. Memorial Day weekend to Labor Day, it is completely dead. And the reason is, is if by summertime, you haven't made the body that you want, or you don't feel as good as you look, or, or as one as as uh, look as good as you wanted to feel. You're in the mindset of I'm still going to enjoy the summer. I'll get back on my grind in the fall. I'll probably still get some detox or fat burner and stuff in here and there. But I'm going to enjoy the summer, especially when you're coming out of summers after COVID. Right? It's it's more than like I'm going to I'm going to enjoy my time. So you have a dead patch from Memorial Day weekend to Labor Day. Labor Day weekend, all the guilt starts kicking in. Then October and November come around. So you have shopping season. So naturally it's higher. December is a little slow because people are on their holiday diet. December 31st, all the guilt is really settling in. And January 1st, you, you can uh, really see the rocket ship. When, when you have sales that are somewhat seasonal, uh, but I guess still predictable from, from your standpoint, how are you guys looking at kind of cash flow and, and maybe what's your gross margin at and you know, because you have a physical product, so I'm assuming you, it's you're, you're not. Um, may, maybe how, what does cash flow look like, and, and how are you managing that? Uh, cash flow is tough during summer because um, your revenue is naturally going to go lower. Um, your cost of acquisition is probably going higher. Um, inventory you're sitting on more. For us, because 
Um, my background has been so much finance accounting focused. Cash flow was one of my biggest things from day one. And then I, I keep it kind of agnostic to being seasonal. Um, I'm always focused on cash flow. So even the days where we're doing 50K a day, right, in revenue, um, I'm just as conservative on cash flow as the days we do 20K or 10K. Um, and the biggest thing for us for cash flow is we use a lot of different tools um, uh, in the fintech space um, where it helps us basically buy tons of time uh, with a few percentage points of interest. Um, you, you have a great um, Twitter thread, I think, on this. Yeah. Right? We'll, we'll yeah. make sure to link that below. Yeah, you, you have some really <laughs> interesting kind of um, yeah. tools that you've, you've built together to, to you know, run, run yeah. the finance side. Yeah, no, that, uh, uh, thanks for bringing that up. That, that's been a big, big piece of what we're doing is, is I'm using like anywhere between six to seven different tools and cycling them all. Um, so leveraging, like paying something here, but using something else to pay that off. And then, pay, and then it has, it's kind of becomes a game, like where you're like, you don't even need to do this. Cause it's like, you have cash in the bank, but it's kind of fun because you're like, how much time can I buy for free instead of paying anything right now? So um, the one thing we do is anything above $10,000 that comes our way, I basically say, I'm not paying this now and I'm going to figure out how to pay it off over time. Um, and uh, that's kind of just been our mindset. Margin wise, I'm assuming you guys probably have reasonably high gross margins. Yeah. So uh, on our lowest products, it's about 72%. Our highest products, about 81, 82%. So I would say on our best selling, you can take 80 to 81 is, is our gross margin. That probably helps. It's tough when, but when costs of acquisition costs went up so much. Right. Um, I feel like it's just not feasible to probably do a D2C company to some extent if you don't have really high gross margins. Because I'm assuming that 80% gets eaten up quick with, you know, very quickly, everything very quickly. else that gets involved. Very quickly. And especially in the last six months, um, rising costs, uh, freight, cost of goods, raw materials, everything uh, has risen. So I don't even know how some people survive without tons of capital. With your agency background and the, I guess the team that you have in place, sorry if there's a lot of background noise behind me too here, but what do you guys hire agencies for Obvi today? And what's your viewpoint on agencies and e-commerce businesses hiring them? Oh yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we do still hire agencies today. Um, we're a small team, right? There's only seven of us outside of us, three founders. Um, and so for us agencies, what they serve is we believe that there are certain spaces that you should hire experts. Um, and sometimes hiring in-house experts doesn't give you enough bandwidth. Um, I could hire the best email marketer, for example, in-house, right? Um, that email marketer still needs probably an extra set of eyes in copywriting, an extra set of hands on the designing, an extra set of hands on the product creation on Shopify. And so even someone in email marketing who's, who's brilliant and phenomenal, they're going to need resources. And so there's certain things like that where email marketing or SMS or something where it's better to hire an agency, in my opinion, than to start building all that stuff in-house because you're not going to get so much more value add because um, the knowledge and theory basis of how you should be running it is pretty common, right? Uh, focus on open rate, focus on click rate, make sure your deliverability is, is this, use these tools, use that. And so all agencies are, are on that same page. Now, some are better designers, some are better copywriters. So find the right agency that works for you. But um, for 5K, if I can get a full stack agency that is only doing email as their main knowledge and knowledge base and service offering, they're probably going to do something right uh, compared to me hiring someone for 8K a month and then he still needs or he or she still needs 5K of resources per month. Um, you know, the math of it just makes sense for the agency. Has. So is your, is your focus in-house then mostly on paid acquisition? Yeah, uh, it's, it's marketing and content and web dev. Um, so basically the, the things that we can control and that we have really good handle on. Now, if you kind of look, look into the future a little bit, 
you've had an absurd growth over the past three years. If I had to guess, you probably have similar plans to get, you know, I don't know, 10, 50, maybe a hundred million. I'm assuming you have significant goals there. What does that look like in terms of, you know, what you're doing now? How do you, how do you plan on getting there? And is it just kind of keep outsourcing, keep scaling up the paid, or are you going to have to jump to maybe retail or TV ads? Or is there any significant hurdle that you think you're going to be hitting that, that you might have to tackle? Yeah, I think, I think for us to get from, you know, from a, being a 25 to $30 million company uh, a year to getting to 50 million, let's say, right. As a next big threshold, um, we're going to significantly need to change the infrastructure of our company. Um, and what I mean by that is, is we need to make way for retail. For example, we're nationwide in vitamin shop as of two months ago, right? And they've been doing phenomenal for us. But it has taken up the bandwidth of one third of my team to do really well there. For me to even consider a target Walmart, Whole Foods or anything else, it's completely out of the question with the team I have. Um, and so, but for me to add something like a Target or Walmart or any big retailer in the food drug mass space um, will significantly help me get to the $50 million target quickly and effectively. Um, I don't think we can get to $50 million with just D2C. Um, it, it, I don't think there's that much room just yet. Uh, we need some retail presence. So, with that being said, I think we definitely need retail. We need infrastructure on the team to build out retail. And I think part of that is we're going to hit a point uh, uh, where we're going to need to raise some capital to be able to do those things. Because no matter how effective you are, even with a $20 million company, right? Let's say you have a million, $2 million in the bank account. There are certain efforts that just are so cash sensitive um, that you need the cash to be able to explore them effectively, um, or you're never going to do them well. So I think those things too, those two things go hand in hand where the next tier of growth for us will probably require some uh, good amount of capital. But uh, I think that one is, is related to retail for sure. Is that, you think in the next year or so, or kind of, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Next six months or a year. Yeah. Yeah. And is that mostly going to come from some sort of, you think like private equity funding or debt or equity or a mix? Uh, definitely not debt. I, I would probably look at as the next tier being one more tier away from our goal about being acquired. And so um, I would want to layer in some strategic piece now to start getting us to that next stage after this stage, if that makes sense. Ron, you, uh, you, you mentioned rolling out nationwide to vitamin shop two months ago. And I think when we were chatting before, you were talking all about how like, you know, the headlines for Avi are freaking amazing. We're zero to three and a half years. You guys are now seemingly in the, like starting to scale up into those um, eight figure ranges, right? Should hit over like 20 million in sales this year and all of that, which is freaking awesome. But I think for anyone listening to this right now, it's like, it's not all totally sunshine and rainbows. And sometimes you have to make like really hard decisions. Do you want to maybe kind of talk through how that deal kind of came to be with licensing to kind of even get into vitamin shop in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, it's it's always nice to see the vanity numbers, right? Um, you know, 10K to 30 million is always nice to, to hear. But throughout our journey, there's been multiple times where we've had to make decisions that are like, hey, if this doesn't work, this doesn't go the way we think, it could completely cripple us. Um, and so one of the things that we had that came to our plate was, um, and, and one of the brands that do a phenomenal job at this is Ghost Lifestyle. And, and I don't know if you guys have heard of that brand or not, but they own currently the largest amount of licensing deals in the supplement space. They've licensed Oreo, Chips Ahoy, Sour Patch Kids across all their products, stuff like that. Um, anyway, the licensing space is really cool because you basically get to leverage a really big company's name across your flavoring, right? So we had the opportunity to get Entenmann's, which is America's largest baked goods brand, um, Entenmann's cookies are everywhere. You know, they're, they're, they're one of the America's pastime favorite. And um, when we got the opportunity, it was a very, very cash intensive deal. And the deal was basically, you know, spend, you have to give us $150,000 guarantee minimum um, and a licensing fee on top of that um, uh, based on a percentage of sales. Um, and then you can get 
the rights to our license and 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 see how that goes. For us, when we looked at this opportunity, we knew this would help us get into retail, um, but we also didn't know if we'd be able to make up the money we have to pay quickly enough to leverage such a big license. Um, but we took the leap of faith knowing that it could completely cripple our business. But if it goes well, it could completely change the evolution of our business. Um, and so when we took this deal, um, our first flavor was chocolate chip cookie entomates. Um, and uh, we launched it. We uh, sent milkmen all around New York City, uh, did a big PR press, did, um, did everything we could under the sun to really show that this is, you know, a really big deal. And it was. Um, and uh, what could have crippled us turned into our second bestseller now. Um, one of the reasons we got into vitamin shop, it's on sh shelves everywhere nationwide. Um, and Entenmann's, as a billion-dollar group they are, is also extremely excited about our licensing deal. So now we're going and, and we're already on our third flavor with them, doing pound cake next. We just did chocolate frosted donut with them. So it's really cool to kind of be able to see these things flourish, but there's also a chance where I wouldn't even be here to tell the story if it didn't go exactly the way it needed to. Um, but I think no matter how, what size we get to, every next step is always a risk to the business completely dissolving overnight. Um, and, and you kind of have to know that that's coming no matter what size you're going to be. And right, that, that's probably one of the most difficult parts of running and owning the company yourself is, is you're the one that's on the hook when you have to make some of these decisions on, you know, do we scale? Are we taking this bet? Um, but it's wonderful to see when they, uh, when they pay off. Yes. Um, Ron, I think we're, uh, we're hitting up on our time right now. Um, this is an awesome episode. I think people are going to get some really kind of interesting aspects to take out of here from all your different experiences. And I'm assuming everyone's going to want to follow along and see what you guys are up to next. Where can people find you and kind of get some more information on you, the brand, everything about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think as of late, I've been most active on Twitter. Um, CEO is my handle. I'm also equally active on LinkedIn. Just look up my name, Ronak Shah. Um, I try to put out as much value as I can, um, mainly because I believe that if at a time when we were building Obvi, if there were more people that were publicly building their companies, we probably could have skipped some um, mistakes that we made. Um, so we're trying to do that where, hey, we've already spent money on making the mistake. Maybe some other people can avoid it. So try to put out as much information in those two platforms. Um, and otherwise, just you know, message me or email me. Ronak at my obvi is my email. And I'm always happy to help any new founders or any anyone that is looking for some questions to be answered. Awesome. We'll make sure to link to everything in the show notes. And thanks again for coming on. Of course. No, thank you for having me, guys. If you thought today's episode was awesome, we would love it if you would leave a five-star review on the podcast, either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference and lets us get cooler and cooler guests for future episodes.